So welcome everybody back to the show and um, I'm really excited to have on today uh, Fred Pierce. Fred is a uh, environmental journalist of 20 years, I believe, and uh, he's traveled to 67 countries uh, in pursuit of, of stories. And uh, I think oh, no, he- I get to 87 now. Oh, 87, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's written, I, I think, going on 10 books, am I right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So, and uh, and he's here today to talk about uh, his new book that's coming out. Let me make sure I got that on screen, um, which is uh, A Trillion Trees, Restoring Our Forest by Trusting in Nature. Um, so welcome, first of all. Thanks thanks for, for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Um, so the... Um, one thing I like to ask book authors when they come on is is just could you maybe tell us just a little bit about the process of of this book, the origin of this book, and 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 why uh, trees in particular? Well, it's been it's been kind of gestating for I guess for a long time, twenty or thirty years probably. Um, uh, as an environment reporter, forests and trees are just a kind of, they're one of the constants. I mean, even before we were talking about climate change, we were we were talking about deforestation in the Amazon and elsewhere. It's just one of those stories. So I've been following it all for a long time and visiting forests as much as I can in my travels around the world. Um, but it seemed to me that kind of now was the moment. Everybody's now talking about a trillion trees. That's the title of the book. Um, it's you know, if you go to Davos World Economic Forum or even um, Donald Trump was talking about a trillion trees a little <laughs> while ago, I seem to remember. It's one of the things that everybody kind of agrees about. Is, yeah, we need a, a trillion more trees. Um, for perspective, we have about three trillion trees now. We maybe had six trillion at one time, so we've shaved half of them off the planet. And a lot of people are saying we probably have room for a trillion trees. And if we put those back, it would be at least a big contribution to fixing climate change. Yeah, it wouldn't solve it. We still got to reduce those emissions, in my judgment. But um, it would give us a bit more time, if you like, um, to get the uh, get the actual emissions down and stop. Uh, you know, we can put some carbon into the forests um, while we stop taking all that carbon out from underground and throwing it into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of talk about a trillion trees. So I thought, okay, well, let's take some perspective on this. Um, I'm I'm not a so much a, a, a kind of doom monger about environmental issues. I see deforestation; it's still happening, but I also see reforestation happening. And the UN's been talking about a decade of ecological restoration, and a lot of that's going to be about trees. Um, we've had various declarations most recently at the Glasgow Climate Conference, but you go back to New York seven years ago and there was a similar declaration. We were going to end deforestation and start restoration of forests. So it's yeah. it's it's a it's a really live issue. So, you know, I'm a journalist, so I went for it. <laughs> so when we're talking about uh, forests, I mean, that that directly references trees, right? I mean, there's there's no forests that don't have trees, right? Yeah, though um, there are trees that are not in forests. Um, you know, I, I have a couple of chapters about about <laughs> how many trees there are on farms. Um, you know, they, uh, they can be just kind of kind of field boundaries, or or they're just kind of small areas of trees for producing firewood, or you know, whatever. So there's a lot of there are a lot of trees around that aren't in what you or I would call forests, and um, right. for me, they're good too. Yeah, and is there in terms of our ecosystems is there something special about trees versus other types of vegetation i i think that's something that people probably don't think much about because trees are so ubiquitous to our landscape but is there something unique about them yeah they're they're, they are the our dominant sources our dominant form of vegetation on the planet certainly in terms of biomass or in terms of the amount of carbon they contain the only other comparable ecosystem is some of our wetlands, the peat bogs and so on. They contain, it's all underground, but they contain an awful lot of carbon. But trees, and, and you know, culturally, we go back, you know, trees are pretty central to how humans have thought of themselves ever since, I guess, since we came down from the trees a few million years <laughs> ago. You know, trees are, you know, we're about trees. Uh, all our, you know, our folk stories and so on, a lot of those are about trees and forests and 
you know, I have a whole chapter talking about how we're scared by trees, but also entranced by them. Yeah, I'm yeah. always fascinated by language. So we used to talk a lot about jungles, which are scary places with lots of weird animals that would go and eat us. <laughs> but now we talk about rainforests, and rainforests kind of cuddly and nice and they're good for the ecosystem. <laughs> so, you know, we have this kind of ambivalent relationship, I think, with uh, with forests and with trees. And that all, yeah. you know, that's all part of it. It's part of the language of how we talk about them. And again, why they're so central to us. But certainly ecologically, um, probably half the world species, certainly half of the terrestrial species on the planet are in and around forests. Um, they hold more carbon than probably anything else. Um, yeah. So they're absolutely central to the way our planet works, the way that ecosystems work, they're yeah. where our, most of our biodiversity is. So they're absolutely central. And yeah. that's uh, why, uh, you know, yeah. you know, losing them is, is, is bad news. Yeah, I was going to say, and, you know, you mentioned sort of environmentalism. I, I, I think of maybe trees as being an icon, uh, a terrestrial yeah. icon of an, kind the of environmental movement, whereas like whales are the, you know, marine version of that. Nobody's yeah. getting worked up about peat bogs. Um, you know, but but cutting down trees is 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 people yeah. get really uh, oh, well, emotional well, about I'll that. I'll talk to you about the carbon cycle of whales, which is a, a, that's another story. <laughs> but it's, um, but it's, it's very funny. I mean, we, it's, there's always a danger of seeing everything through the prism of carbon. I know cl climate change is important, but yeah. I think we should think about trees as as other things. I mean, one of the you know large part of the book is about how trees influence climate in ways un unconnected with carbon. Yes, they yeah. soak up carbon and hence will you know, kind of minimize global warming by keeping the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But they also have huge local effect and regional effects. They generate rain. You know, if you go inland on continents where there aren't trees along the coast, it gets drier as you go inland. If you go inland in continents that have trees, it gets wetter as you go inland. And the reason for that is that trees are recycling the rain. The, you know, the moisture comes in off the ocean, it rains out. If there are trees there, they transpire it back into the atmosphere and it goes on the winds and goes downstream and it rains further down, downwind. Yeah. Um, so they're absolutely central. They keep us cool locally as well, not just the shade, but the, the interchange, you know, they're, they're, the transpiring of the moisture also keeps keeps the air cool and some scientists I talk to reckon that they generate a lot of the winds as well so they're really yeah. central to uh, not just the, the climate in that sort of big sense of greenhouse gases and so on but I mean it, it, it where rainfall happens and local rain lo the local meteorology if you like is is really tied up with trees as well yeah that was I mean it, it was a really as I read this book um, I just was like the whole time going, wow, that's so interesting. Like, I didn't know that. I didn't know that about trees. I didn't know that about, you know, what what position uh, they, they, they the role that they play in climate and things like that. It's so yeah. fascinating. I mean, that, I just- you take, I, you know, I, If you take them down, you change the local climate as well. You can see that uh, the, yeah. the chapter where I, where I go to the edge of the, you know, where the Amazon is being being attacked by, by, by farmers and you, you can see right on the edge there, and I spoke to scientists who are, who are doing this, you can measure how the climate changes as those trees come down um, and how you, you're changing the climate so much that if you like, once you could destroy a rainforest, it may not come back as rainforest. I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in the fact that trees will regrow. Yeah. Um, and that it's not a one-way trip when you lose trees. Nature will restore trees, but it won't always restore the same trees because you'll have changed the climate when you take out that rainforest and what may come back may be more like a savanna forest than a rainforest mm. because there's simply less rain. Yeah, you, you referred to these um, that cycle as a flying river, I believe, in the book. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. They, they, this is a, a phrase which they more or less developed in Brazil, where they could see it happening real time over the Amazon. Um, so much moisture is being recycled back into the atmosphere by by the forests there that um, you create what are more or less literally flying rivers. You know, you can fly fly in a yeah. plane through them and measure the moisture there, and that's carrying on downwind and creating a new cycle of rainfall, so that. You know, you can go to, I don't know, Argentina or Uruguay, these kind of countries which are not forested, or certainly not rainforested, 
Um, but most of their land is used for, for agriculture, for growing crops, for growing soy and, or cattle ranching and so on. And most of the rain that they're getting is actually moisture that's been recycled by the Amazon. Mm. So you take out the Amazon, you don't just, just, just mess with, uh, with the rainforest, you mess with all the crop growing regions around. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, yeah, you can, you can chop down the rainforest because you want to grow more crops, but you may find that you have those crops won't grow because you won't have the rain. These are right. the kind of forces that we're, we're, we're dealing with when we, when we mess with forests on the kind of scale that we're now doing. And we've seen that, you know, we, climate's changed in Europe and North America too as, as forests have come out. And it is something which we can, you know, we, we need to start thinking about putting these things back, restoring the world's forests, and hence the, the title of the book. But um, so, so let me it, ask you, know, you can go too far so, and, it, and, it, and it, it's going to be really hard. But the fact, the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be. Right. So let me let me ask you a bit of a, um, a devil's advocate question. But let's say you had a really arid region like the Sahara Desert mm. and you wanted to get more rainfall there. Would you would you, you know, increase the, the number of forests and trees along the coast of Africa to to get more rain there? I mean, would that work or? It should work. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That, I mean that's certainly the way to try it. Um, you're, you're playing with forces that are, that are difficult. You know the relationship between the forests on the land and the and the the ocean circulation and that kind of thing may may mess things up. But in principle and in most places, if you start putting trees back, you will generate rain. And the place to start putting the trees back is certainly on the coast because well that's where mm -hmm. the, that's where the trees will grow because there's rain coming in off the land. And if you can work in land and, and start from the coast and work in land and, and putting trees in place. Eventually na nature will figure it out and will start um, growing the trees itself. But it's probably a good idea to give it a helping hand at the start. One of the I, themes in my book yeah. is that nature will do most of the work. If we're going to have a trillion trees, we're not going to plant a trillion <laughs> trees. I mean, I, it, it's difficult to get your head around how big a number trillion is, but it's, yeah. you know, you, you would have to be planting thousands of trees more or less every second for the next 30 years <laughs> to get up to a trillion trees. Now, honestly, nature is going to do it better than we can. So, but we can give nature a kickstart. You know, we, yeah. can, we can help things along. And I think that's going, yeah. to be, that's going to be the trick in the next few decades figuring out how the ecological restoration that we've got to do on the planet, and I think we will do, because I'm an optimist about how we can create space for nature again. You know, we use land very wastefully now, we can do a lot better. Um, and we need to do a lot better to help nature control the big cycles on the planet and maintain the climate and so on. Um, so that's going to be a trick, is finding out how we can just kind of tip nature over the edge so that she starts rebuilding. Right. I mean, um, I, I think one message that I took away from the book was that, um, you know, more trees, planting more trees, I should say, doesn't equal, you know, better. Like, it's not that simple, right? I, I felt like this is a more nuanced take on it. There's upsides, downsides. Um, and, yeah. you know, a lot of that is dependent upon like where, where you're planting them. Um, and, and then you've got this whole thing about carbon credits and people planting trees and this mm -hmm. idea that, well, you just, you know, pop that tree in somewhere and now I can do what I want in terms of generating, you know, carbon uh, emissions. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we, the, the thing is we've got to plant the trees and reduce the emissions. As soon as mm -hmm. you've got a trade-off between the other, it will just reduce the, uh, the imperative to cut the emissions. And trees can, yeah, trees can take up carbon, but they can only do it once. But if you're if you're burning fossil fuels year on year on year to generate energy, that is keeping putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there's only so much that trees can take up with the best will in the world. So we've got to do both. And the problem with those financial systems that like to trade off and buy carbon credits, they are in danger, unless they're really carefully organized, they're in danger of, uh, of actually postponing the moment where we really grasp the nettle. I mean, mm. I'm, I'm a relative optimist. I think that technology is moving on sufficiently that it doesn't make so much sense to burn fossil fuels in a lot of circumstances now. Right. So we're getting, right. getting wise to that. So I do think we can do it and that it's not an environmental killer. But we've got to plant the trees as well, partly because it will give us time and partly because it will yeah. produce a better 
functioning ecosystem for um, you know future decades. I think we just we just kind of need to do it. The other the other thing, yeah, I think as to where you plant the trees, there's a surprising amount of room, not necessarily for planting, but for allowing trees to regrow. If you look across North America, um, there's a lot of abandoned farmland and forest is naturally coming back and we can in encourage that process. As a planet as a whole, we actually have more trees than we had 30 years ago. They're not all in natural forests, as you would say, but we have mm. more trees and, for you know, forest restoration is happening. And we need, we need to encourage that. But, you know, it's going to happen where forests used to live or where forests can can grow now. We don't want to start planting up deserts yeah. on a large scale. Ecologically, you might you might be able to have, do some kind of geoengineering geo effects with the climate. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm a great believer in, I, I sometimes say, save the deserts um, as well as save the forest. Because yeah. deserts are ecosystems on their own grounds and arid areas of the planet are really kind of important so um we shouldn't see them as just sort of an empty canvas where we're gonna where we're gonna put up trees the other thing to say is that in an environment like that trees can actually warm the planet we know yeah um, that's or, fascinating a matter of science which says that if you start planting trees in arctic regions uh, you you change the reflective reflectivity of the surface of the land so much that you land up heating. If you think of it this way, if you're replacing a dark forest canopy, putting that in where there was snow, well, the snow was reflecting virtually all the sunlight right back into space. It was it was acting as like like a freezer for Arctic regions. Whereas if you put in trees, that's a dark surface that absorbs solar radiation and. Uh, emits heat and you have so that dis, despite the carbon effect which is a more than counterbalancing the carbon effect you can actually um, have an overall heating effect if you put trees in arctic regions and the same rather applies to deserts a lot of deserts are very light you know sandy uh, reflective you know you get uh, you know you can blind yourself in the desert because it's just so reflective yeah, um, yeah so if you start planting trees there um again you're having the same effect you're replacing a very reflective surface with a very dark canopy surface and there's been research done in in israel where they've done a bit of planting of trees in desert regions on the edge of the negev desert and so on and i visit one of these areas in the book yeah, where, yeah. Um, you know, their overall effect is actually going to be to warm the planet rather than cool the planet. So you've got to be a little bit careful what you're doing sometimes. Um, yeah. Trees are great. and We want trees in lots and lots of places, but planting them in deserts is probably not a smart move. I, I just find that I find I found that so interesting, too. I mean, uh, you just intuitively, you know, when you walk into a forest out of the hot sun, um, it feels cooler to you. Right. Mm. Uh, so I find that kind of surprising in a way that 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 what what's called the I think albedo or albedo yeah, effect. Yeah, that's right. Reflectivity. Um, yeah, is is actually um, decreased right when there's yeah. I mean, that, you know, I mean yeah, if you're out of the if you're out of the sun, yeah, it'll cool you down. You'll you'll be okay. But if you look at the wider environment, it's actually um, heating the atmosphere around. Yeah, there are, you know, there are complex interactions here and it's different at day or different at night, you know, or the seasonal differences and so on. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on and the, the flow of moisture interrupts these things or changes these things. So, you know, the scientists have to be a little bit careful to balance everything. I, I love that complexity. I mean, I, you know, some people are a bit scared by it. I rather love it. <laughs> um, we're still learning stuff, but um, yeah, you know yeah. there are parts of the world, including quite large parts of of the United States, I might say, where not just Alaska, but even even further south, where um, planting trees is um, not necessary. I mean, there are complications here because, of course, the carbon that you accumulate keeps as while well, the tree is still growing, it's still taking more carbon dioxide um, in, so it's having a long, a more and more of a cooling effect down the years. Whereas mm. the reflectivity is like a one-off thing. It's just that it's the, the, you know, the warming effect is the same today as it will be in 10 years' time or 20 right, years' right, time. Right. So there, yeah. are, all, there are like time thresholds as well. You might find that there's a warming effect for the first few years, but if your trees survive and grow, then maybe after 50 years, they'll contain sufficient carbon that they'll flip into being, being an overall kind of cooling effect. Yeah. Um, part of the problem in Israel is that climate's changing there so fast they don't think the trees are going to survive that long. Um, 
you know, the trees that they've been planting in the last 40 or 50 years, they think they're going to be dead before they, they, they flip into the, uh, into the cooling phase. So, you know, all, all this kind of stuff's got to be looked at. Um, um, yeah. You know, it's not simply a matter of planting trees good, much as I like trees. <laughs> yeah, so and I, and I, I think you... enjoying the complexity, but I do rather. I think you, I think you, you know, captured this complexity and nuance uh, really well. Um, one thing also that um, I, I feel like a little bit this book is kind of poo-pooing the idea that you know, planting trees is always the best solution as well. I mean, it's even in the in the you know the subtitle, restoring our forests by trusting in nature. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so you there's this idea that if we just sort of let nature take its course, that it will reforest itself. Um, so my question about that is, you know, um, so I'm from uh, Washington State originally, so I grew mm -hmm. up surrounded by pine trees, but often there's clear cuts up in the up in the hills. Um, and you can see where the, you know, the, the, the paper companies or whatever have gone in and, and reseeded and, and there's because all the trees are like bright green and they're coming, you know, coming up in the same spot. Mm. But is, is there value in doing that or, or would it be better just to let the land recover on its own, to let the forest recover on its own? Well, it depends I, I, I what you're trying to do. I think. I mean, yeah. If you if you if you want if you want if you're basically you know a, a tree farm, then you probably do want to plant because you can plant the you know the uh, the trees are going to grow fastest. You'll have a, a, um, a predictable output. You know that you can come in in ten or twenty years or whatever the life cycle is, and do the harvest and plant some more. And you know, and unless the bark beetle gets it, which of course you know. Uh, if you have monocultures, then you, oh, yeah, you right. can have real disease problems, and, and they're having them. Um, so that's part of the story. But you know, if you if you know your silviculture and you and you don't screw up, then for a forester that may look good. But if you have other interests, if you're interested in the biodiversity, if you're interested in the the effect on climate, if you're interested in how good the soils are, if you're interested in those kind of other things, or indeed if you're, um, um, you know, somebody used the forests for other purposes, you might be an indigenous community that has a whole range of uses for the forests, mm -hmm. uh, for fruit and for hunting and, you know, for maintaining the flows of the rivers and all sorts of stuff, then you may have other 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 priorities. And if you want anything approaching a natural forest, a biologically diverse forest, a forest with good soils, a forest that maintains the hydrology of the local river system, that kind of thing. Um, if you want to sort of recreate that problem, nature is probably rather better at doing it than, than you. You know, people talk well, a lot, certainly in Europe, about rewilding. You know, that's, that's the big thing. Everybody wants to do rewilding, but people are very people have different ways that they think about it some people just want to plant everything up in 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 detail you know sort of which is more like gardening than rewilding it seems to me and some people want to just kind of let let nature rip and i'm 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 with the let nature nature rip people i think nature will probably recreate a forest better than we can with all our our kind of uh, scientific knowledge of um of uh, of how ecosystems work um so I'm mean, I'm in favour of letting it rip, but it do, of course it depends on what you want. If you want a high productive forest, um, and there will be cases for high production forests because it may allow you to leave natural forests alone that you would otherwise have started chopping down. So I'm not yeah. saying that monoculture is is necessarily bad, um, but it's one way of uh, it's one way of having a productive forest. And if we're going to do it, let's do it well and let's um, make the most out of those so we can spare other regions. Yeah, that um, makes sense. But, but, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm firmly of the view that if you want to restore something like a natural forest, no, I mean, they're not really natural, you know, I mean, they're all kind of, <laughs> you know, we mess with forests for so long, for thousands of years, that none of them are natural in any real sense. And now we're changing the climate, which is altering things again. So, but, you know, if you want a kind of diverse forest, if you want a sort of natural feeling forest with a lot of different species in, lots of insects and, you know, you know all that kind of stuff, then nature is going to be better at it. Um, that that was an interesting um, an, another interesting point that you made uh, about uh, actually a chapter or two about um, indigenous uh, populations and how when you know um, people came from Europe to colonize the Americas for example uh, they they found uh, 
you know, they thought that this was just a kind of virgin wilderness, but in fact, the indigenous people had been manipulating the land for many, many years in, in, in South America and North America. Um, I found yes, that int very interesting too, um, because we think of this, the Amazon in particular, the which I believe is the largest forest in the world, as this kind of untouched mm. wilderness that we're destroying. But in fact, it's been manipulated for many, many, many years. That yeah, I mean, that, you know, there's no virgin forest out there, really. Um, we've, you know, we, there were big cities, um, certainly by the standards of the time in the Amazon, you know, only a few hundred years ago. Um, yeah, Europeans showed up and we massacred some people and we brought in diseases that killed an awful lot more. And the survivors kind of retreated into the forest and the forest regrew. But, but the very first people that went along the, along the Amazon River um, and just sort of reported what they saw, reported seeing really quite large urban areas stretching mm -hmm. back into what is now forest. And those, have, those disappeared very quickly because the people simply disappeared. And the, you know, if you're in the Amazon, the, the forest will come back really very quickly, you know, within yeah. a couple of decades or certainly three or four decades you'll have regrowth which is you know for a, to a layman's eye and indistinguishable from what was there before so large areas of the amazon probably most of the amazon um is in some sense um a kind of overgrown garden and we discover i mean we discover lots you know the archaeologists are discovering these sort of remains of ancient uh, cities. We know that people rework the landscape in lots of ways to do agriculture. We know there are large numbers of the trees in the Amazon were actually planted or, or uh, encouraged to grow by local people. You can see the kind of groves of different productive trees um, which, are, which are found along sort of old, old roadways and, and that kind of thing. You, the more you look, um, mm -hmm. The more you d you discover on the forest floor to to see that this is far from virgin, and much the same is true in North America. So yeah, mm -hmm. Europe Europeans in our romantic way, um, we 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 tend to think that we stumbled on this sort of this sort of virgin world in the new world, but well, it wasn't really like that. Um, um, it was a much busier place than we imagine, and a much more engineered place in a sense. What you can say, I think, is that the locals were a lot better at managing that than the Europeans who came in and brought their European ways of, uh, uh, you know, you see this most strongly in attitudes to fire. For Europeans, think that fire is bad in forests. And so, you know, we've been trying to suppress fire for a long, long time. And the result is you have such a buildup of forest, um, of, of sort of dry material on the forest floor, that when you do get a fire, it's a much bigger fire. And we're seeing some of the consequences of, of that now in the, in the recent big wildfires. That's partly to do with climate change, but it's also to do with the way that we manage the forests. And so now there's a move back to what in our scientific way we call control burns. Yeah. So you go in, you know, before at the start of the dry season, but before everything's really dry and do small controlled burns that you can control because that will reduce the amount of dry stuff on the floor. So that if there is a big, um, a big flare up later on, it won't take off in the way that we've seen some do. So there, and, and that's, that was, that's the traditional way of managing forests. Um, you know, you talk to indigenous communities, some of them have always done it. Some of them have kind of half forgotten or it's a folk memory, but they, they take to it. And of course, uh, the, the sort of more broad-minded forest managers uh, are now going to indigenous communities and saying, well, you know, how, how did you guys manage this? You seem to do it better than we did. And, you know, what can we learn? Um, so there's a, quite a lot of re-education going on, quite a lot of relearning of, um, of, if you like, the old ways, to, to put it in a slightly romantic sense of how forests, uh, how forests were managed. And it turns out that these lessons are really, really important as the climate mm. changes. And forests are more threatened by being, if you like, in an extreme environment for their survival. And if they're, gonna, uh, if they're going to survive, if they're going to evolve to, to live in a, in a rather warmer world, they're going to need all the tricks that we can come up with. And a lot of those, it turns out, are, um, are better known, not just by indigenous communities, but often just by regular rural communities. So some rural communities learn this stuff too. So I'm yeah, a great believer, I'm a, you know, I'm a great believer in listening to the people in the forests. And actually I'm a great believer in giving the forests 
back, if you can use that language, to the people who know them best. And that's often maybe just smallholder farmers. I'm not saying that there's, to, to, you know, they should be frozen out, but certainly a lot of it, a lot of that knowledge is still with indigenous communities. It's amazing how it survived, but it, it is still there. Yeah, it seems like indigenous peoples, uh, from 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 what you've talked about in the book, are better at sort of living, um, <laughs> not to use a you know cliched term, but living in harmony with forests. Yeah. It's not that they're not changing them or or manipulating them or engineering them, as you said, in some way. That they're just they're, better at it, you know. It's, it's yeah, just they're just better. That. They're better at using them. They're, be, they're better at managing them. They understand that you know, if you keep these trees in place, you'll get more wildlife that you can then hunt, or you you know, yeah. if you keep the, this fruit, then animals will you know all the kind of sophistication of ecosystems, which uh, you know, ecologists spend spend years and uh, trying to learn um, is almost kind of folk knowledge in, in uh, I don't want to romanticize it too much. I mean, clearly it's not yeah, always yeah. like that, but there is a lot of knowledge out there. Um, and the sensible thing to do is to, is to try and learn it and uh, make use of it. I think you mentioned uh, a, uh, a Bush uh, people in Africa that were able to, they're managing something like 250 native plants in their environment or something like that to, to kind yeah, of, I mean, to produce more food or, you know, food around them. I think that's, that's pretty, that's pretty normal, really. I mean, people who've lived in the forest and used the forest, they're, they're pretty poor. Um, but, you know, they, they know what's in the forest that they can harvest and they know how to make sure that they get a harvest next year as well. And maybe they still do hunting and they know that the interactions between animals and um, and trees. So, you know, there's a lot of that. And there's they're now relearning. Um, I mean, farmers in, in West Africa, I've seen where um, they've been told by, you know, colonial uh, agricultural um, extension people, you know, the experts come in and tell them, no, you've got to take all the trees away so that you can plow your land more easily. And, you know, if if you before you plant your crops, you discover roots in the ground, then rip them up and, you know, clear everything out so that you can have a sort of clear run for your crops. Um, and, and this went on right up into, uh, you know, the sort of drought times in the 1970s and 1980s when, you know, uh, large areas on the edge of the Sahara were just going to desert and it was a you know, desperate situation and there were famines and so on. And people suddenly started learning there almost by trial and error that actually if you left the trees there, if you didn't haul up all the roots, if you didn't remove all the sort of undergrowth before you planted your crops, you've got a few trees there and yeah, it was a bit harder to harvest, but the trees provided shade and they provided bark that you could use for stuff and they provided fruit and they improved the soils and um, and they provided, you know, stuff that you could sell in the local markets and they generally became a good thing and they were getting more rather than less um, yield from their, from their crops of maize or millet or whatever they were planting and they were getting all these other kind of side benefits. Um, and they were providing shade so that villages were better to live in, a whole bunch of stuff. So what we now find, and it took scientists, uh, geographers rather, quite a long time to realize that because nobody was really looking, but they suddenly discovered that in the southern half of Niger, one of these um, West African countries on the edge of the Sahara Desert, there were suddenly a lot more trees and geographers had been away for a few years and I, you know, I interviewed them and they were absolutely fascinated. They said, well, we went there in the 1970s and the 1980s and there were no trees and we all we went away and then we came back 10 years and the whole area was covered in trees and nobody told us. Um, and it turns out there's a massive reforestation going on. I say forest. I mean, these are uh, trees on farmland, you know, perhaps 10 trees in a, on an acre or something of that sort. Um, but there are trees that are part of the landscape, useful part of the landscape, that are improving the landscape for local people and, of course, having knock-on effects on local climate and local river flows, and, and they're absorbing some carbon too. So people kind of um, realise then, I think, that, well, actually, isn't this the way we always used to do these things before <laughs> these, um, in this case, French um, agriculturalists came in and told us how to do it properly? And they're kind of going, you know, let's... Well, why don't we just go back to what we used to do? Um, um, 
hey, it works better, you know? <laughs> it, it and just I, seemed, I love, love that, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of a mixture of folk knowledge, but also just of experimenting and learning and being innovative yeah. and, uh, you know, doing doing all the things that we Westerners sometimes think that we're so clever at. But it turns out, you know, local knowledge is, can be really good too. Yeah, it just yeah. seems like there's um, this hubris uh, of science and sort yeah. of European colonialism where, you know, we're gonna we're gonna teach the 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 folk people how to you know do it, and they throw out all the folk knowledge that's been accumulated over thousands of yeah. years. And I and I I see this also in things like um, folk medicine. Where it's mm, like, okay, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's that's tied into forest yeah. too, because a lot of those remedies come you from bet. the forest. And instead I mean, of my, saying, my, my, my thinking about some of this is, I mean, I think Western, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a science journalist. I'm a fan of Western science. I know what Western oh, yeah, science. Is. Yeah. Western science is that sort of tradition of science, the Enlightenment tradition of science, if you like, is brilliant at drawing, you know, so, sort of um, drawing the big the big rules. You know, we'll. You, you know, we'll see the big picture and we'll be able to compare one place with another and say, well, that wasn't, that wasn't. So here's a general rule, a general proposition. Western science is brilliant at doing that. And that's really, really useful. Um, but often the local local specific knowledge is is more useful in a local. So so, so you then you then find that Western agriculturalists or ecologists or whoever they are have learned the big principles and they kind of have a big picture of how the world works and so on. And then they come in and they try and apply it locally. And they suddenly find, or, or hopefully they discover that, um, well, you know, the local environment is more complex. There are local particular circumstances. There are, uh, you know, there's, there's stuff going on there that's not really relevant to the big scale that they know about, but is really critical at the small scale. And the people who know about the small scale are going to be the locals. Mm-hmm. But it's, as you say, hubris is the thing. It's quite hard for the people who know the big picture, know it really well and better than anybody else, to realise that that may actually not be so important at the local scale, and maybe that local knowledge is 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 more important. And that's um, a, it's a it's a lesson that people are learning. I mean, I yeah. interview ecologists these days who say. Well, yeah, we know all this stuff. We've we've done all the PhD theses, and we teach lots of people, and they come to our campuses, and we tell them all sorts of stuff, and and it's really useful, and it's valuable, and, and da, 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 da. but actually, when you go and talk to the local people, you discover that they know far more about their ecosystem, their own local ecosystem, than than we can ever do. They've got many more names for different things. They know the interactions at the local level. So that's that's the thing. And, you know, if we, if we can better um, mold together the, the the big scale picture, while recognizing the sort of the you know the very locally specific, then uh, well we'll 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 manage the planet a lot better, I think. Do you do you think that it's a it's a problem of communication in the sense that, um, you know the the people the indigenous people or the local people don't know how to talk about these things in a way that makes sense to scientists. Um, well, that's true. It's also the scientists don't know how to talk. Well, yes, I, makes yes sense of to the course. But I'm thinking yeah, about... Yeah, yeah. It, 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 yeah, clearly there are communications, but, but it's more than that. I mean, there are... Yeah. Um, I, I'm sure the local people don't, don't always recognize the value of the big picture stuff that people can yeah. provide from outside. But equally, the outside people who tend to think that they're the top dogs... Um, uh, and many local people will look up to them and say, "Well, you're the big guys. You know, you've got you've got the letters after your name. You must know what's going on." Um, so, you know, the boot is certainly uh, on generally on the foot of the of, of the generalists and the, and the you know the global experts, um, and you know, understandably because they can travel around the world and what they say is of relevance to a lot of places, whereas what the locals know may be only relevant to their river valley. It may have no value almost literally anywhere outside, except as a sort of cultural discussion point. Mm. Um, so, you know, we need to recognize the strengths and the weaknesses of, of both sides. It's partly about communication, but it's it's more than that. It's about perceptions of what is valuable and what isn't, and um, uh, what is about academic reputations in careers and all sorts of other <laughs> stuff as well. You know, let's be, let's be clear, a lot of this is quite personal. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a that's a facet of. I, mean, uh, yeah, I, I speak I speak as a journalist. So I mean, you know, I suppose you know, I I kind of <laughs> think more on the side of the of the, of the generalists trying to uh, sure uh, make sense of the world from a from a rather sort of 
vaguely Olympian standpoint. But, um, you know, I hope I don't suffer from too much of the hubris. If I go into a local area, right, first thing, I don't want to start telling people what to do. I want to start asking questions. <laughs> well, I, yeah, and, and, and again, that comes through in the book. I think, uh, you know, you talk to, to so many, I'm, I can't imagine how many people to, to write this and uh, indigenous yeah, people I mean, and, and scientists and, um, yeah, it's amazing. I've been, I've been traveling a lot, but uh, you know, that's, um, it's partly because I enjoy it, but uh, it is the way you learn. I'm a slightly old fashioned journalist. A lot of journalists sort of sit at computers these days and reckon they can understand the world. And um, I'm old school enough not to think that's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm jealous. I wish I'd travel. I could have traveled. Well, I've got time, but uh, 87 yeah, it's, countries it's, it's is kind of It's getting harder to persuade editors to pay for trips, I tell you. Oh, yes. Yeah, no, I know that's true. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, uh, you know, as far as, as providing, um, you know, on the ground details about things, I mean, it, it really makes the story come mm. alive and, 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 it, you it's know, also the stuff true. that you learn that you didn't know, you know, you don't know what sure. you don't know. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Donald, Donald Rumsfeld in his phrase that, you know, the, the, the unknown unknowns is a, is a <laughs> proposition and I'm all in favor of unknown unknowns. That's what I'm interested in. <laughs> Can I just quote you? I'm a fan of Donald Rumsfeld. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, no, he was. I'll he, had some, yeah. he had some. some clever, clever lines for sure. It, well, it was. A, it was. A, it was. A, it was. Yeah, it was more than a clever line. I thought it was quite a profound line. Um, he, he didn't apply it in some of his policy making, but that's another story. <laughs> that's for another another uh, show. <laughs> I think there were there were th kind of three big things I was trying to say in the book. One of which is that trees are not just about about carbon; they're about climate and the local weather in in much more profound ways than we've got used to thinking about. It's one of, it's one of my. I think we're, I mean I'm absolutely agreed that we've got to fix climate change, but we these days seem to run everything through the prism of climate change, and we can lose a lot when we're doing that. So we have to be mm. careful about that. And the second thing was about natural regeneration, because I think that that's going to work better under most circumstances. Um, you know, nature knows how to do it best. Um, there's plenty of evidence for that. And the third strand was to was local control. I, I, you know, I've written books about land rights. Uh, I wrote a book called The Land Grabbers about how local land was being taken by uh, by sort of the corporate world, if you like. Um, and it, that's not just about kind of environmental and, and land rights justice, though I think that's important. But I think it's also about, you know, better functioning ecosystems. Um, that, you know, the simple truth in many parts of the world, most parts of the world probably, is that local indigenous management of the land, even if they're using it quite intensely, um, and certainly is true of forests, is, is a better conservation tool than putting land behind national parks mm. in many parts of many parts of the world and there are some examples in the book of how forests protected inside nature reserves and national parks are the ones that get uh, really because there's no ownership of them that, apart from state ownership which is a pretty half-hearted ownership um, gets ransacked and, and people move in and they do all sorts of crazy things and have no interest in the long term of the land because it's not theirs mm. whereas the land that is used it's a use it or you or use it or lose it philosophy the land that is used by people and who have an interest in it and, and a cultural relationship with it and an expectation that their future generations will use it as well those are the people who will manage the land better and that's where you see the forests you know you can go whether you're in in the Amazon or North America or Southeast Asia or Africa or wherever you are it's the mm -hmm. people who have control of their forests who are sometimes regarded as, um, as you know, the environmental pariahs because, oh, they're destroying everything. They're coming in, they're tearing down the forest, they're doing this. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah. The truth is rather different. The truth is usually, not always, but usually that they're managing the land a lot better. And the more control that they have over the land, the more sense of a stake in the future they all have over it. Um, I, so I have a question about that, though. Um, the you know, as technology, uh, as pe more and more people have access to technology and we become more efficient at harvesting resources and things like that, do you mm. think that that will continue to be true um, for indigenous peoples that that they won't um, sort of overuse the land, the land in, in the same way that, uh, 
you know people in in first world countries have well there's there's no guarantee but my experience and um, that of researchers who've uh, trying to put numbers on all this is that they do um, it depends on a number of things it depends on communities that are still able to exert control over their resources control over their land um, if outsiders are coming in and they can't keep them out and that's a problem and clearly things can go downhill so that everybody is just uh, um, <coughs> taking what they can from the land while they can at the sort of uh, tragedy of the commons problem yeah, yeah. Um, more typically I mean it is about power it's about politics it's about control um, if communities do have control over their land, they're really quite good, even now, even today, at making good decisions about that. Politics is never perfect, and this is local politics rather than national politics, and we know either can go wrong. But it is a lot of it's about control. Um, and if you lose it, then, you know, if, you, if, if this was your forest and the, somebody's come in and the government's told you that you can't do this and you can't do that in your forest and the park rangers are in charge, you're going to say, well, you know, I'll go, okay, all right, well, I'll, I'll come in and chop down trees in the middle of the night or, or you know, go hunting the animals, go poaching. But it's poaching when it's, you know, you're not supposed to be doing it. It's hunting when you are. <laughs> but you, you're going to come in and you're going to stuff and you're not going to care much for the future because, well, yeah. you're not in control of the future. Yeah. If you feel you are in control of the future, things can be better. As I say, yeah. nothing's perfect, and I'm not saying that governments should completely keep out. A lot of a lot of the best management of ecosystems happens when there are deals between governments and local communities, ones that uh, kind of stand mm. up so there's external scrutiny, uh, but a sense of control locally. So I'm not saying you know that it's a, everything will be perfect if we just hand things back. Right, My right. experience is that the bad stuff happens when control is taken away from local people. And the best examples of successful successful management yeah. are when communities are in control. People talk about a lot about community conservation now, and they talk yeah. about it a lot because it works. Yeah, I think intuitively that that does make sense because if you're invested in something, you know, if we're in control yeah. of something, we'll we'll take a view about it, and we'll, yeah. and we'll yeah. you know, we'll care about it. Yeah, and if we're not, sure. and if somebody's sort of messing things up for us, then we get, you know, well, to hell with them, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, I had I had one th final thing I wanted to ask you about. So uh, and I like to ask this um, when we're talking about these big kind of environmental issues: um, is are are there are there things that individuals can do to help improve um, forests? Um, you know, is it if it's not planting trees? What what is it? I mean, what 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 should they be doing? Should they be planting trees? Maybe you know. I'm not. I'm not against planting trees. Um, yeah. All I say, all you know, it's good, uh, and people like to do it, and it makes their local environments better. So I'm all in for you know, I'm all in favor of planting trees and and campaigning to have more trees in your local environment. It's good. You know, urban areas are much better with uh, with more trees. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I, I mean, I do think, you know, a lot of the stuff happens at a political level or, but as a consumer, you can, um, you should certainly be looking out that you're not buying wood products or paper products that are taken um, in ways that you disapprove of, uh, whether from land grabbing or, or you know, non-sustainable forestry. You know, there are plenty of consumer labels out there that, that provide some, uh, they're not perfect, but they provide some protection in those kind of ways. Uh, so look out for those things. So as a consumer, do that. As a consumer, yeah. think that you're buying from companies that you think at a certain level are trying to do things better. Yeah. Um, and I think corporations notice that. Um, so a lot of the reason why some corporations are really pretty good at their forest management and their uh, procurement policies for, for timber products and other products from forests is because they know about consumer pressure and they know that if they're bad guys Greenpeace will be after them and if Greenpeace <laughs> is after them then you know the general public gets wise to that and will will buy from somebody else so that matters and I think that also plays up to the political level because I think if corporations or some corporations see advantage in you know, taking the environmental high road then 
they will they will want governments to impose regulations mm -hmm. that everybody has to do it because they don't want free riders coming in and, and just sort of messing things up for them if they That's decide right, yeah. on a on a on a on a high road path um then the big corporate you know some of the big corporations and some of the big corporations are among the best in this area these days because they yeah. have more investment to lose so they're more careful um, but they then want to secure their investments better by having tough regulation. So you can get into a virtuous cycle. Right. And again, right. I don't want to be, you know, I'm not going to say that solves all our problems, but there are, there are real levers that we can pull as consumers, mm -hmm. uh, as voters for sure, you know, let's not vote for the bad guys, you know, um, and, but, and then in an individual personal level, in local politics, in uh, yeah. You know, join you know join community groups that are trying to do things with the environment, whether it's it's trees or or what. Um, yeah, we can all do this kind of stuff. Rewild mm. your back garden. Yeah. Yeah. In England, yeah. In, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here in London where everybody has their their, their little back garden and they're all <laughs> and they're all, and they're mowing their lawns every every <laughs> every Saturday and all that. Rewild your lawn. Don't mow it. <laughs> just leave it and see what grows. Um, you'll probably find that some birds will come in and they'll drop some seeds and I'll have an oak tree in your back. I've got one growing in my back garden right now where I think a jay came in and and, um, and left left an acorn behind, you know. So uh, I like know, I like that though. Start start stuff. start with your backyard. I like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's absolutely. great advice. Yeah. <laughs> and if it's not against the bylaws, get some trees in, you know. But, but you don't have to plant it. Probably nature will do it for you if you give her a bit of wood. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, so why don't we leave it there and okay. um I'll just show the book again so it's uh when is this coming out by the way i didn't it's coming out back end of uh, they tell me back end of april back end of april probably okay, just so usually we're... rather bad at telling you when the book comes but the, you, you you you'd better check <laughs> so we're, we're, uh, yeah, we're it's about april back end of april beginning of may so we've got a while yeah Cool. So we're a bit we're a bit ahead of ahead of the curve on that. Um, yeah. So uh, and then is where can people uh, find you if they want to follow your work? Because you also, in addition to writing books, write articles and how yeah, how, um, how best to follow your work. These these days, the, my most my most regular presence is on a website that operates out of Yale University Environment Department called Yale Environment Three Sixty. Oh yeah. Great publication. Um, yeah. I write. I write a piece there about every month. Uh, uh, you know, so a lot of my journalism appears there. Elsewhere, too, you know, I'm a freelance. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go wherever anybody will pay me. But um, <laughs> the, the stuff that I like to do tends to turn up there. Okay. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Fred. Uh, very enlightening, and uh, really enjoyed reading your book. So, uh, um, thanks again. It was fun to talk to you. Cheers. All right. Cheers.